Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, what a guest that we have today. I think that we're gonna learn quite a bit, you know, from going from professor to uh, you know, medical stuff. I mean to to starting his own business, scaling it, raising money, you name it. I think that is gonna be a quite an exciting conversation. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Rajiv But Niji, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Alejandra. So you were born in Gaza. So how was uh, how was life there? Uh, difficult. Uh, I I don't remember much much of life there. I was born there and moved to the U.S. when I was about two. Um, okay. But uh, it's it's certainly a challenge. And you know, you think about where I came from. Uh, you know, my my parents tell me I was born feet first in a stairwell um, in one of the poorest uh, and and certainly most troubled parts of the world. And so it. It's a constant reminder of, of how lucky I am and, and how much, uh, you know, good fortune I've had to, to, to have the opportunities that I've had to learn as much as I have in a coming from a place where, you know, very few people have, have that chance. Absolutely. So, so what, what triggered them to, to move to the U S uh, well, you know, for my dad, uh, you know, he was the first in his family to, to really go to college. Uh, none of his parents, uh, none of my mom's parents really had much formal education at all. I think, uh, you know, finishing elementary school was, was as far as, as most got. Um, and so for him, he said, you know, education was everything and education there, um, was really mobility. I think especially coming from a place where he had been displaced by political instability. He kind of always told me that, you know, the only thing that that can't ever be taken away from you is, is what you learn. And so he, he learned, he became a dentist. He was lucky enough to get a scholarship to, to go to USC, the university of Southern California to pursue his doctorate. Um, and, uh, that's what brought us to California, uh, initially, you know, on a student visa. And, and obviously, uh, we ended up staying. That's amazing. I mean, I did that journey too, the F1 and then from that H1B and then, the green card. So uh, good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. So, so you uh, raising, being raised in, in Southern California, like how, how was life there? And how, how was life growing up there? Uh, you know, it was, I grew up in a town called Diamond Bar, mostly. It's kind of a white picket fence neighborhood. Uh, you know, the, 
the focus there is on the schools and the sports. So it was quite suburban. I think maybe the only thing interesting or unusual about my town growing up was that Snoop Dogg lived on our street. Uh, but <laughs> so then after that, you, you decided to go into, into Stanford. So, um, so what triggered this and, and what was the experience? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think I visited, uh, like, like most kids that are ambitious, I visited all the schools and applied broadly. And I remember, you know, waiting for the college acceptances eagerly. I think I sat outside of my house and chased the mailman up the road, uh, to, to grab the letters. Uh, back then they actually came with physical letters. And if it was a big one, you got in, and if it was a little one, you didn't. And I saw the big one and it was like the most exciting thing ever. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had a great time there. I think, uh, it's a place that is really unique. Uh, you know, I, I feel very lucky to have, have been educated there, but even more lucky to have the friendships that, that have come out of my time there as an undergraduate and a graduate student later on, even as a, as a, as a physician. And why history? So I majored in history. Um, you know, I think in, as a, as a, as a kid in high school, I was always, you know, really good at math and science. And, uh, I, I wanted to learn something that I didn't think I was that good at. Uh, and so maybe it was counterintuitive. I said, you know, what am I least strong at? What did I not, not learn the most? Um, and so I, I started taking history classes. I, I really just got, got fascinated. Um, I, I, uh, I thought I was actually during college. I kind of, I loved it so much. I, I wanted to go do my PhD in history and I actually did my master's at Stanford in history as well. Um, I think my, my focus was always, you know, on the intersection of history and medicine. I had a real interest in understanding how people thought about their health, how they thought about well-being. Um, you know, the main paper, you do a major paper for your, your degree, um, that I did was on, uh, different approaches to treatment of the mentally ill and, the you know, in the, in the, what, what you think of as the middle ages, um, in, in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions and, and the approaches they took, you know, all the way from, you know, the fall of, of Rome to the fall of Constantinople. So I, I was fascinated by kind of the evolution in, in how we think about health, well-being, and disease. And uh, I, I thought I was going to go down that path full time. Very, very cool. And then medicine. Medicine ended up being the path. Why? Uh, so like I said, I thought pretty seriously about doing my doctorate in history and, um, it was actually one of my history professors who, you know, in a conversation, you know, expressed frustration about, you know, writing about challenges in the world, both, you know, present and historic, but not necessarily being in a position to help where, you know, advocacy, um, action was not part of the profession, um, and, and, you know, based on that and some experiences I had as an undergraduate, um, you know, doing, you know, bits of clinical work, uh, in developed country, developing countries, I, I decided that I wanted to be a practitioner. Uh, and, and so I applied to medical school very late. I think I submitted my applications on the last day that you could submit your application. <laughs> uh, but I was, I was lucky that it worked out. Got it. And, and the PhD, how, how, why, why did you think that, that it would, it would make sense a PhD at the time? Uh, so I did my PhD actually, you know, during my last year of medical school, I left to go, to go do my PhD. Uh, I don't know that I thought it made sense. Um, and so I, I can't tell you that it was part of a grand plan. 
Um, I think if it were, I I probably would have done it differently. Um, You know, I think for me during medical school, I, I probably had a bit of an identity crisis. I, I loved medicine. I, I loved caring for patients. I, I focused most of my time at San Francisco General Hospital um, and, and doing a program there focused on underserved medicine. Um, but, you know, I, I think I, I was spending all my free time, you know, reading about policy and history, scratching an itch that just felt uh, that I felt I needed to, to address. Um, you know, I, I don't think I was the star student during medical school. I got by. I did pretty well. Yeah. Um, uh, luckily, my med school, like like most, was pass fail. Uh, but for me, it was just this curiosity and this feeling that I wasn't really fulfilled um, doing clinical medicine all the time. I wanted to be able to 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 think about the bigger picture, um, and it was driven in part by what I saw in my patients. I mean, if I was going to address the concerns that were bringing my you know homeless patient with alcoholism into the hospital. Um, you know, it wasn't just about giving them the right treatments at that time. It was about, you know, how do we create the structures around them that make for a more equitable social and healthcare system? And how do we fix what's fundamentally flawed in our healthcare system that makes access to care so complex, so aggravating um, for so many of us that that actually leads to the bad health outcome? So it was this desire to want to think about the upstream determinants of health um, now people call those social determinants, but it's, it's social, it's policy, it's economic. I mean, it, it's all encompassed in that. And that's part of what drove me to, to England, um, where I was lucky enough to, to, you know, get a scholarship that, that sent me to Oxford, um, and, uh, you know, pursue a path there of, of really exploring you know, international policy and international political economy. Wow, what a diverse background. I mean, jumping from history to medicine to international relations. I mean, I'm just getting dizzy from all the knowledge that you acquired. I think I, I got dizzy along the way. Maybe not from the knowledge, but from, <laughs> from the changes in context. Got it. So then after after all the studies, you then uh, you then you then became a doctor or what happened? Yeah, somewhere along the way somebody hands you a medical degree, but but you really become a doctor, you know, when you do your clinical training. Okay. Uh, and so after, after I did my PhD, uh, I, I actually came back to Stanford and, uh, started my residency training and, uh, Stanford was a, a great place to do that. They actually allowed me to, after my first year to, to do residency halftime. So I could spend half my time doing research, uh, and, and, and other work and the other half actually doing the residency and the clinical work. So I got to fulfill both, both halves of my interests. Mm, very, very interesting. And. And what were you kind of like seeing at this point? I mean, what what were the interests that you were getting? Like, how were you starting to see like the the, the future path for you as a professional as well? What was opening for you? Yeah, I, I at the time I I thought my future path was you know the path that was in front of me, the path that I was very familiar with, which was you know treat patients in a clinical setting, and then be a you know academic um, in addition to that, writing papers about how to how to make the healthcare system better in this country and around the world. Um, and I, I pretty eagerly pursued that path. Um, but, uh, you know, not too far into it. Um, just as I was starting a faculty appointment, I kind of realized that, that maybe that wasn't the best path to change. Maybe that wasn't, uh, the, the, the path that would allow me to have, you know, the impact I, I wanted to have, or that would, you know, make me fulfilled. And, uh, 
you know, it just so happened that my, my good friend, um, Ali, who, who's my co-founder at Collective Health, uh, you know, he got, he got sick and incidentally was, was treated at Stanford. He had what's known as a volvulus of the small intestine. Um, it kind of small intestine twists upon itself and loses blood supply. Bottom line is he was in and out of the ICU. He got really good clinical care. And then afterwards he got like a mountain of bills from his insurer. Some of them said that were real bills. Some of them said, this is not a bill. Some denied coverage and said he had to pay for it. And he came to me and he said, Hey, like you, you know, something about healthcare and healthcare finance. Like, you know, you're, you're a doctor. This is what your academic work is in. Yeah. Uh, you know, can, can you tell me, is this normal? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's normal. And then in those course of those conversations, it became clear to me and it was clear to him. He's like, Hey, you're not, you're not going to fix this by writing papers. Uh, you know, we're going to fix this by actually creating an alternative to a very broken status quo. And um, I think if I think back to, you know, why I didn't want to become a, a history professor in the first place, it was because I wanted to be a practitioner. I think what I realized as a combination practitioner of medicine, but a researcher of policy was I wanted to be a practitioner in both realms. And there was no, there was no more aggressive or rapid way of becoming a practitioner who could make an impact in the healthcare system than starting a company that could fundamentally align the incentives in the system and, and, you know, grow that company quickly yeah. as we we're very blessed to be able to do in, in this part of the world. Of course, no, makes uh, total sense. And I believe that uh, Ali, you know, had um, also a really interesting background as well. So he had built um, a bunch of companies too. So, I mean, he had been around the block a few times and, and I think he was uh, with a, a Kiwilt key, software or something like that. But, but, but the idea basically was that he had the entrepreneur uh, bug and he got you contagious with that. <laughs> Uh, I think I think that's a, a fair way of putting it. I think we both we both had that bug. I think mine mine came from inexperience and total naivete about what it meant to build a company, yeah. um, but familiarity with the healthcare system. And his came with you know a personal familiarity and a personal frustration with the healthcare system and a lot of experience in building companies. So uh, I think it, we were we were both grateful to work with one another. So let's talk about. This brainstorming that starts to happen, you and Ali start to think about how to resolve this problem uh, and, 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 and how to bring that solution to life. So, so walk us through what happened. Yeah, we, we started talking about this and uh, we used to cycle together all the time. Uh, we're, he was living in Menlo Park. I was actually living in a little cottage in Woodside and we would go cycling and chatting about what we wanted to do turned into getting together, you know, most days for for coffee meetings, I remember we came up with a, the, the name Collective Health uh, while having a breakfast uh, in, a, in a cafe in Menlo Park, um, the one right by Kepler's books, I forgot what it's called, um, uh, Baroni, Cafe Baroni, and uh, immediately went and bought the domain, uh, and then we said, you know what, we're going to do this, and uh, we had clarity that, you know, it was, it was such an obvious problem that, you know, fundamentally what was broken in U.S. healthcare was you had the largest purchasers of care, which were employers, and Allie was on a, a large employer plan when when he had his his healthcare incident. Um, employers buy like you know something like almost ninety percent of of private health insurance, um, but they weren't really the ones driving or controlling you know the the coverage, and they weren't the ones actually 
managing their population healthcare spend, uh, but they were wanting to, and they were in a better position to do so than the traditional incumbents. And so for us, it was just, how do you align the incentives in this system? And how do you create a company that can align those incentives? And that was the brainstorming. And the original thesis that we went out with to raise our Series A was really about that. It was about incentive alignment in the U.S. healthcare system and how we would form an administrator that could bring that alignment to the market. Um, it was it was really a pitch deck based on uh, that idea, um, and you know before any any kind of product and, and and even proof of concept product was was created, but but a thesis driven by hey, you're, no one is going to transform this healthcare system by two people or, or even a group of people, you know, tinkering in a garage. You're going to have to build a, a pretty meaningful company uh, before you even release your first product. Yeah. And and the Series A is something that happened pretty pretty quickly, no? Uh, after founding the business, but and, and I'd like to to dig into that a little bit. But before we go there, what happened um, after that moment where when you and Ali said, you know what, we're going to do this? Yeah. So we said we're going to do this. Uh, we began to put together a plan. Uh, we put together uh, a mission um, and. Uh, we started talking to people. We, we selected, you know, to talk to investors that were going to be thesis driven and mission driven. Uh, and we were lucky to find really very quickly um, an exceptional fit uh, in the team at Founders Fund who, who took a bet on, you know, us as founders uh, took a bet on this mission, uh, you know, before anything was created. But they, they recognized that, you know, this is an idea um, and and hopefully a, a pair of entrepreneurs who who you know could bring some change to the system. So then the team that you guys started to to think about, like those those early folks that that you needed to convince to to really join you and to enroll them in in this solution that you wanted to bring to life, like like who were those members? Uh, so yeah, we we sell to employers, um, not to individuals, and so uh, you know our first set of employer customers. Uh, were were really visionary companies in many ways. We had, um, you know, a pilot customer um, with a small data, basically a, a small company that does, you know, shredding of documents and and, and document pickup and storage uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they took a bet on us uh, because they knew that they wanted to do something different, uh, and they were, you know, small enough that they they had confidence that we could handle them. Uh, but but from then on. In the following year, we signed on, you know, several very large marquee customers that had many, many thousands of employees, and they were entrusting us with the health of health of all of their employees. Uh, I think one of the funny stories is, uh, you know, one of the companies that that became our part of our first set of cohort. They were asked by, you know, one of our potential investors for for the Series B. Hey, you know, would you would you ever partner with Collective Health? Would you ever give your health insurance to Collective Health? And and that company's head of finance said there's absolutely no way that we would ever give our health insurance to a startup. And uh, nine months later, they did. Wow. Uh, and so we, we remind them of that, that this industry moves faster than people think. And the transformation that is afoot uh, in, in healthcare and healthcare coverage and what we think of as is, 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 is essential coverage, it's, it's changing quickly. And I think those concepts are going to evolve rapidly in the next five years. And I think that this is obviously, you know, the um, 
you know, they, they, this is more like from the customer's perspective, but we're talking about um, a space that is, uh, you know, it has the regulation, you know, all, all the other hurdles. Uh, so I guess, you know, when, when, when you and Ali, you know, started to execute on this, I mean, were you set on, on a specific, you know, profile of people that you needed to onboard as team members for collective health to, to really work with you and push on the execution side? Yes, you're right. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned regulations. That was one of the first things that we observed too. And actually the first person that joined us uh, after me and Ali was, was our, who became our chief legal officer. Um, and, uh, you know, that was an immediate focus for us. We bought all the books that you could on, on the regulations that govern self-insured plans and read and studied and learned. Um, and I'd say that actually, you know, in between the idea and even raising the Series A, Ali and I spent uh, several weeks, months just reading and educating yeah. ourselves on on how this space works and the regulations that apply because we knew that we needed a crash course. And, you know, I, I had some expertise in healthcare finance, but it didn't mean that I understood all the nuances of this space. So it was a, an education um, and a, and a real aggressive effort to learn. So then as you guys were learning and, and reducing that steep learning curve as well, what were, what were some of the early days like, like what were some of the challenges that you were encountering? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a few challenges. There's like the practical ones, right? We got our first office and, uh, you know, we, we didn't have any furniture in there except for stand up desks. We had no chairs. So people would come and interview and sit on the floors. Uh, we, we had two bullet holes in the window. It wasn't exactly a, a warm and fuzzy space. Right. Uh, so there's those practical challenges of, of being a, a very, uh, young strapped company. Uh, but then there is, you know, the, the, the ones about, well, how the heck are we going to enter this market? And, uh, you know, I, part, one of the first things we needed to do was, you know, form partnerships so that we would have a complete end to end product because we weren't going to build everything all at once and nor, nor, nor do we ever plan to build everything. Uh, we're building a platform. So we need partnerships to be part of that platform. Um, and then we also needed to find willing customers. And so spent a lot of time just, you know, on the phone kind of explaining our vision and our ambition to potential partners, most of whom just sort of like hung up the phone on us or wouldn't take a meeting. Uh, but we were lucky to find some that took those meetings and had those discussions. And there's no reason they should have. I mean, we were a three or four person company and, you know, they were, they were engaging with us. And honestly, if it weren't for some of those early partners and I, you know, some of the early medical networks that we worked with, uh, you know, that we, we wouldn't be here today. And so, a certain number of incumbents in this industry did take a bet because they wanted to see change happen. Uh, when it come, came to customers, it was a, a building of a relationship that showed that, hey, every promise we made was something that we delivered on. Um, we were going to be good to our word. Uh, they could trust us. Um, and, you know, we built that trust over that first year. Um, and that's what led to a lot of the, those customers very quickly signing up with us. Because for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of collective health? Yeah, so the business model is is really uh, we're we're allowing employers to run their health plans out of product for the very first time, um, and so it's a it's a nuance. It's known as self insurance, um, but it basically means that employers are paying for the doctors' visits and labs and hospitalizations of all their employees out of a bank account that the employer owns rather than insuring them. It's not a yeah. new concept. It's actually the way that 
two out of three Americans with private health insurance get their coverage. Uh, but what historically has been done is that everything's been done manually without technology uh, and with a user experience that frankly leaves us confused and wanting more by big insurance companies. And we were approaching this saying, we're going to build a product that makes it effortless to understand, navigate, and pay for care. Whether you're a member, you know, a child of, a, of, 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 of an employee or a spouse of an employee uh, who's accessing care, or whether you're the HR team at the employer who's charged with running a benefits program and managing its costs and ensuring the health of your population. We needed to create products for the very first time so that we can have the experience that we all deserve and that's frankly in, in, on par with the, 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 ex, the expenditure on healthcare. And you're, you're fine on the financing side. I mean, you guys raise money lightning fast. I mean, we're talking about January, 2014, you guys were founding the company, you know, late 2013. So how the hell did you guys manage to do this? You know, I think for us, it was, it was a massive problem for the country, a massive opportunity for a business and a alignment around a plan that could succeed in transforming the probably the largest uh, segment of our economy, which is you know still stuck in the era of fax machines. Uh, and that's how we did it. I mean, it was everyone recognized that and they recognized that to do this, you're going to have to have a lot of ambition. And, uh, and, and frankly, I think that's what drove, you know, our early series A investors to, to want to back the company. It's what drove our series B, um, investors in, in NEA, um, to take a bet on us. Um, you know, even before we had demonstrated that, that the product, uh, was, was really working in the market it was before we had launched with our first customers. Uh, you know, they took a bet because they recognized this is a massive challenge. And here's a, the first thesis that they saw that could actually address that challenge. Did you guys know early on that this was going to be a capital intensive business? We did. Like I said, and, and actually one of our um, investors and board members, um, founders fund, uh, said, Scott Nolan says, you know, you can't, uh, you can't iterate your way to space. Scott had come from, from SpaceX. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you just can't, you can't do that. So you know that you have to make large investments to build a product who, frankly, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands now people rely on for access to their medical care. You know, you can't just do that lightly. You can't do it incompletely. It requires a truly massive build. And uh, we knew that that would be capital intensive, but we also knew that it would be worth it. So as you were approaching the, um, the fundraising efforts, like what were, what were some of the, um, the questions or, or, or what was really people looking into something like this, you know, for them to have the check boxes marked before saying, hey, I'm, I'm putting it here a check. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the first, the first thing, and, it, and it obviously it varies by stage, right? We're, we announced recently in, in June of, of this year that we raised a series E of $205 million. Um, but, you know, before that we had raised, you know, from different investors at different stages. And I think at each stage they're looking for something different. Uh, and, you know, I think early on and whether it was the B or for us, even the, the C, it was just you know, is there real market demand for this? Um, and what are employers asking for? And what are your early customers saying about what you've done for them? And is, is this 
demand that's going to be replicated and scaled across segments, uh, across geographies? Um, and can they believe that thesis that, that, that it would, um, and you know, how, and, and, and just as importantly as the, the market conditions and the demand is, you know, who is the team that's around the table to build this? Uh, because, you know, this is, this is, as I mentioned, a, a, a massive endeavor. Um, and do we have the right combination of, of technology leadership, of, of, of operational leadership, of healthcare um, expertise uh, to build the company that's going to define the next era of, of, of American healthcare? And, and I think that's what the investors are asking themselves because yeah. they're not going to bet on a company who's going to do something small and incremental. And so I think the people um, that we gathered and the team that we built mattered just as much as the product we built. They mattered, which also mattered just as much as the customers that we won and their affinity to us and the, the metrics that we delivered for them on you know, satisfying their members and, and managing their costs. Um, all of that mattered. And I think that, that alignment of, of, of those three things that I mentioned is, was, was important at every stage. Because how much capital have you guys raised so far? Uh, just about four hundred and thirty million. Wow, that's a lot of millions. It is. It's an enormous responsibility, uh, yeah. but it, it, it's certainly what's required um, to have the impact on the U.S. healthcare system that we want to have. I mean, look, it, as, as big of a number as that sounds, you have to remember that you know the the competitors that 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 we go up against for any given. You know, employer. I mean, they're making a decision between Collective Health and United Healthcare, which has you know, say two hundred and fifty billion in revenue annually. Yeah. Um, you know, they're 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 comparing us to to giants, and uh, you know, we need to be able to to play in in that league. Of course, and you were alluding to the latest round, the um, Series E a round that was from SoftBank Vision Fund, but you guys also have. Wonderful investors. I mean, you have Formation Aid, Great Oaks, RRE Ventures, Founders Fund, Redpoint, Google Ventures, NEA. So, how did you guys uh, manage to put the uh, the Oscars? You know, the red car the red carpet of uh, tier one investors. You know, uh, for us, uh, you know, it's it's about having the right people at the table. And you know, the first question we ask of any investor that we're partnering with is. You know, do they share our vision for for the future of U.S. healthcare? Um, and every single one of those does. And then, you know, second is, do they do they have the appetite um, for an effort that is going to take many years? Uh, because you know, we know, and we knew at the very beginning that this is going to be a multi-year transformation, um, and that for us to be successful, this is not going to happen overnight. Um, and this is not going to happen, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not a, you know, uh, you know, it's not like a, a consumer app that can go viral um, in, in the same way. Uh, you know, this is a product that takes time to socialize and to build and to expand. And we needed investors that, that had that appetite. And so I think all the ones that you named and all the others that you didn't, um, including uh, DFJ Growth and uh, Rubatala and, and so many others, you know, have that appetite. Sun Life Financial, which is the largest uh, reinsurer in the United States for for medical uh, medical care, uh, you know, they're a significant investor and actually are are D and E. Um, so it was really making sure that we brought the people, um, you know, onto our cap table, individuals and also firms uh, that that had that vision and the ambition, 
but that also had the appetite uh, for for how big and how how big this is going to be and and the timeline that it's going to take to get there. Yeah, and and as we're thinking about vision, just to follow up on that, um, in a in a in a world where the vision of collective health is fully realized, what does that look like? So what what it means for a member is it's effortless to understand, navigate, and pay for care. Uh, what it means to an employer is they finally go from sort of just being a passenger uh, in the U.S. healthcare system where they're paying for all of it, um, but they don't get to choose where it's going, and they just pay more and more each year, and they're getting you know worse and worse health outcomes. To they get to go to being a driver of that U.S. healthcare system and controlling their healthcare spend and their healthcare outcomes just like they would any other part of their population. Um, uh, yeah. You know, and I think for all of us as Americans. What it means is a healthcare system uh, that is up to par with what we invest. I mean, we have the worst healthcare outcomes of any developed country. We spend yeah. more than any other developed country on healthcare, almost double you know, our nearest competitors. We have administrative costs that are you know way out of proportion with the rest of the world. Nearly, you know, one out of four to one out of every three dollars goes to administrative costs. Um, none of that makes sense. And we also have, frankly, healthcare markets that are not competitive, and that's the root cause of a lot of these problems. So I want us to also create a healthcare system that's not only you know, easier to use for members and more responsive um, to, to the needs of, of the employers who are paying for all of it, that frankly creates a more competitive healthcare system in the United States so that we can get what we deserve in terms of outcomes and efficiency, uh, because that's what's fundamentally broken. Yeah, and obviously um, a very ambitious uh, vision here, Rajay. So the um, so you know one thing that comes to mind, you know, also being a founder, and I'm sure that the uh, that there's a ton of entrepreneurs, you know, on the line as well listening. You know, it, the the journey that we go through is is not such thing as a as a straight line, right? So you have the days, you know, that are beautiful where you feel like you're conquering the world, and then the day where you have all fires, you know, surrounding you. And 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 my question to you is. Was there a time for you and, and, and perhaps, you know, with Ali where you felt like, um, you know, it was, it was super dark, uh, it, was a, it was super challenging and perhaps a massive breakdown that maybe led into a really magical breakthrough that, you know, got you where you guys are today? Yeah, more than one, uh, Alejandro. Um, it's, it's constant. And, and like you said, it's cyclical, right? There, there are great days and there are bad days. I think, like, if I'm going to put it in context, I think you almost have to have a certain amount of uh, intentional naivete um, in building a company, um, but particularly to, to build one like, like we are that's, that's you know, doing something you know, that's challenging, frankly, a very you know, established industry where a lot of people don't want you to succeed. And so yeah. you know, if I, you know, I came into this thinking I had expertise, like you said, in medicine and politics and in healthcare finance and, and thinking I knew what was going on, but Look, if I knew everything that I know now, and you asked me six years ago, do you want to start this business and do you think you'll succeed? Like, you know, it's a good thing that I was almost, you know, naive um, because, you know, expertise brings with it a certain kind of incrementalism. And uh, I think I have to work very hard to, to resist that. And we all do. And so to me, when I, when I talk about that, I mean, to get past those dark moments, I'm not suggesting that you know, you need ignorance. And that's not what I mean by naivete or a disinterest in learning. It's actually the opposite. Um, 
it means that when you're in those moments that you're constantly asking questions, they might be obvious, they might be uncomfortable. Um, and, and, and that's, that's actually the mentality that we've had, um, over the past six years in, in building and growing this business in the face of often, you know, a lot of resistance. Um, and so, uh, that to me is, is important that, you know, expertise alone is not enough. Um, and you know, it, it too often, if you kind of just rely on what you see in front of you, um, and what, you know, you believe the facts to be, you know, you lose the curiosity and the optimism that will allow you to win customers, to build your team and to win in the market. And you have to have that. And you have to keep that with you to get through those dark moments. So was there like one specifically that maybe comes to mind that you will treasure forever? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I often think of is, you know, I think it was in the, in the, in, in late 2015, the summer of 2015, it wasn't clear to me that we were going to get, you know, any major customer. We had just had, you know, one, one pilot customer with like 80 members and, uh, you know, to make our plan work, we needed to go from 80 to 10,000. And it wasn't clear that we were going to get anywhere near that. Um, and, uh, instead we, we surpassed it. Um, and, you know, we got a lot of forward thinking, very large companies to take a bet on us. And I think it was that optimism, that promise, that vision for the future to which they subscribed and to which our team subscribed that got them there. And um, I think you can't underestimate, you know, how important that is in, in building a company. Um, you know, I often say that we're building a movement as much as we are building a company. And, uh, you know, that same, that same sense of mission and purpose, you know, has to be not just internal, but external. And how big is the business today, Rajay? Uh, you know, we're, we're growing, uh, we're, you know, about 500 employees today across three offices here in San Francisco, Lehigh, Utah, and Chicago, Illinois. Uh, you know, we're growing our headcount, you know, growing about a hundred percent just over the last couple of years in terms of our headcount growth. And, uh, we're growing to support more and more members across the U S we're about a quarter million members today. Just this past year, we had our biggest, uh, jump in, in membership. So, um, you know, we're, we're growing pretty, pretty quickly. And there's no sign of that slowing down. Wow. That's a really unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, I saw as well that in terms of valuation, it was reported, obviously, you know, over a billion, that there is some thoughts about IPO and things like that. So what do you guys think in terms of growth? Like what's, what's in store? Look, Alejandro, we don't disclose our valuation or, you know, I can't say anything about plans uh, for the future in terms of you know, how, how we might proceed. So I can't comment on that, but to me, when I think about our growth, um, and what we're focused on is, is just making ourselves a profitable company, but more importantly, uh, creating a healthcare system in the U S that is sustainable and that serves all of us well. And, and the growth that you guys have experienced is, uh, is really incredible. I mean, you were just alluding to it, but, but I think that for you and Ali, you know, also as founders, you need to to experience an incredible uh, growth as well, to be in parallel with the growth of the business. So how would you say that, that you guys, you know, have been able to, to accomplish this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I, you know, for, for, for both of us, you know, I think we have to be pretty intentional about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not the best person at, at being reflective, uh, but, you know, I force, force myself to be reflective and, 
uh, you know, have, have gotten, you know, some really good feedback along the way from, from peers, uh, in, in the form of feedback and from my wife who, who kind of observes me and tells me what I need to do differently and, and where she sees me doing well and not doing so well. Um, and so it's taking that feedback to heart means letting go of some things that I mean, kind of as a founder, you got to fire yourself from a whole bunch of jobs along the way. Um, you know, I used to run our payroll and HR, right? <laughs> you you got you to let yeah. go of things. Uh, but that, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what you have to let go of. And, uh, and so that's important is to check in and ask, you know, what, what's the value that I bring? Um, and what can, you know, I do that's really important to do today, not just what seems urgent. Um, and what can I let go of? Uh, because it's important that as we grow, the team is really empowered to run with, frankly, every aspect of our growth. Got it. And the other day I was saying, I had a really interesting chat with um, with this individual that has a, you know, I, I, I really, really respect him, you know, him and, and what he has accomplished. I mean, the valuation of his company is, a, is over 40 billion. So, uh, so super hyper growth. And in many instances, he was sharing with me that it really felt like being in a Formula One a, a drive seat where all of the pieces of the car were like wobbly and you 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 didn't really know if it was going to be stable enough or it was going to crash because you're just going as you go when you're in the hyper growth mode. So my question to you, Raji, is uh, it just came to mind is how do you deal with uncertainty? Yeah, I think that's, you know, you just got to embrace it. Um, uncertainty has been part of this journey since day one. Uh, I mean, the only thing that's certain is if we don't, if we don't do something to try to make our healthcare system better for the people that we serve, they're not going to get better. Um, and you know, that, 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 that's got to motivate us that, you know, the incumbents haven't improved and you almost have to just come back to your mission to remind you of why you do what you do. Um, and it's, it's not to be you know grandiose about it, but you know, I think you have to believe that you're going to make a unique impact to make the uncertainty tolerable. Um, and, and that, that for me has been important and grounding, but, Look, you, you almost have to just accept that there are going to be things that you can't predict. There are going to be things that might not work the way you expect. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost adopting that kind of Zen mindset of that's okay and we'll make it work. And it's asking, you know, what are the uncertainties that are catastrophic that you really need to plan for and mitigate and which are the ones that are okay. Um, and, uh, and, and okay to live with. And, and I think, when you put them in those categories, um, it, it, it sharpens your focus. Yeah. And, uh, definitely the, um, especially when, when the uncertainty and, you know, and there's tough moments, you know, in front of you, which there are a ton of them as an entrepreneur. I remember this quote that I read that whenever you're thinking about giving up, just remind yourself the reason why you started. That's a better way of phrasing what I just described. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, I, I'm right there with you. I, I fully, fully agree. So, Rajay, for, for the people that are listening, there is a, you know, always one question that I typically ask the guests that we have on the show, and that is, knowing what you know now, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, what would that be? What would, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? I would say it's, it's embrace learning. Uh, it's, it's to accept that it's okay to not have the answers and to know that you're, you're learning every day and launching a business just like you are in, in, you know, any other pursuit. 
and at the same time that you're embracing learning to embrace, embrace and not lose sight of your naivete, um, all the things that you don't know that bring you maybe unreasonable optimism, uh, because you also can't build a business without hanging on to that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And Rajay, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, they can, uh, they can reach out to me on, uh, on LinkedIn, uh, they can look for my, my profile there, um, at Arben EG or on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to be in touch and learn more. Very cool. And what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Arbat Niji. Fantastic. Well, Rajay, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. All right. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.